0: You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, you can visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow me on Twitter at OV And every episode of this podcast will always be free, but if you'd like to support what I do here... You can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes, as well as previously unreleased content. And that covers all podcasts that I do, Obsessive Viewer, Anthology, Tower Junkies. Um, It's kind of a big thing. Um, Patreon has a ton of stuff um, there for, uh, what I think are pretty reasonable monthly, uh, payments or monthly, uh, pricing. So check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And yeah, welcome to the show today on anthology. I'm going to be discussing once upon a time. It's the 13th episode of the twilight zones, third season, and it originally aired on December 15th, 1961 and of course i'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of science fiction theater season 1 episode 21 dead reckoning and uh before i get started on this very excited because um i think i mentioned this on the previous episode but this now once i finish this episode once i finished once I, once i finish uh reviewing once upon a time i will have officially been i will i will have officially reached the halfway point of the twilight zone the original series um, it's run on television. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm going to do something kind of special for the halfway point episode. Um, I had some ideas in the works, but I think that I'm just going to do one episode and then, and then, and then continue on with the Twilight Zone because it's been a while since I've really watched the Twilight Zone and, uh, I'm very eager to get to the second half of the series. Um, yeah. And once I do that, like the next one up is, um, five characters in search of an exit, which I'm very excited about because obviously I've never seen it. So, and that's, that's one of the big ones um, that really uh, stands out or is, is very memeable or has gone viral or what have you. So, Anyway, very excited uh and I just want to take this moment to thank you guys for follow me following me along on this little journey and everything. I know it's been very hectic with different uh hiatuses or hiatus um, hiatuses. And yeah, I'm just very eager to be back into anthology and everything. And once again, like the patreon.com slash a viewer If you want to support the show, you can go over there and get some cool content as well as uh, helping support me and, and what I do. Okay, so let's get to once upon a time um this uh let me go ahead and read the plot summary (laughs) courtesy of the twilight zone unlocking the door to a television classic by martin grams jr of course as is customary i'm going to be spoiling the entirety of this episode so if you have not seen once upon a time go check it out And then uh, come back and listen to it, but consider yourself warned. I'm going to be spoiling the episode um, right from the jump with this plot summary. So here we go, plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. Woodrow Mulligan, a resident of New York, 1890, is not content with the progress of time. The speed limit has raised to 8 miles an hour. The cost of living is going up, and oh, the noise from the blacksmith and street peddlers... Working under the employment of Professor Gilbert, Mulligan tries on a new invention, a time helmet designed to transport the wearer to another time, but only for 30 minutes. He finds himself whisked to 1962, where the high cost of living is substantially more, and the noise is intolerable. When Mulligan realizes the time helmet is damaged, he goes through a series of comedic efforts with an electronics expert to have the helmet repaired before the 30 minutes expires. He succeeds in his task, returning to 18, Now content with the time period he lives in. As for the scientist from 1961 uh, who traveled back to 1890 with Mulligan, he finds the decade barbaric with few of the conveniences to which he was accustomed. Uh, Mulligan uses the helmet to send him back. That is very misleading. Um, <laughs> that's the plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic. Um, I think that that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> cause it says, as for the scientist from 1961 who traveled back to 1890 with Mulligan, clearly it is a typo because it's supposed to be a, the scientist from 1890, uh, who traveled back to 1961. And also it says 1962 earlier. Wow. Okay. That, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway uh i've cleared it up so uh here we go talent rundown of course i'm going to talk about the great buster keaton as woodrow mulligan this was his only episode of the twilight zone and i believe it's the only collaboration he did with anything related to rod serling um, obviously he was a legendary silent era comedian, uh, star of such films as the general Sherlock Jr., uh, steamboat Bill Jr. Um, he was a titan of the silent era, uh, silent era filmmaking and everything. He was up there with, um, like Charlie Chaplin and, uh, oh God, why can't I think, uh, Harold Lloyd. Um, and as far as my relationship with, um, as far as my relationship with the, the silent era, I've watched a, a, several of, uh, Charlie Chaplin's movies. In fact, I think that the, uh, I, I know for a fact that the, <laughs> the great dictator is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and, but I regrettably have not seen any Buster Keaton. Um, so I'm going to have to rectify that for sure. Over on, uh, Obsessive Viewer, uh, we do a, uh, usually monthly, um, Monthly installment episode series where we basically uh, myself, Tiny, and our friend Ben, we uh, go. We're going through the Roger Ebert's great movies list, which Robert Ebert wrote over 300 essays, uh, all about movies that he deemed as great. And so there's a like almost 400 movies that we are working our way through, three at a time. Each episode, we pick we pick one for all of us to t- to review. So we do three three movie reviews and one episode per month, basically. And I know that, I know the general is on there. I don't know how much more Buster Keaton is on there, but I'm going to make an effort. The next time we re- we record that, I'm going to make an effort to choose um, a Buster Keaton movie because uh, I, I just haven't seen any of his stuff. So anyway, look forward to that on Obsessive Viewer um, uh, in the coming months. So uh co-starring as Rollo is Stanley Adams. This is his first of two Twilight Zone appearances. The next we'll see of him is Mr. Garrity in The Graves in late season 5 and he was also in Requiem for a Heavyweight, and in 1958, he was in uh, Saddle the Wind, which was written by Serling, and in 1963, he also appeared in a, an episode of Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater called It's Mental Work, which was uh, which had a tele, teleplay, ply, wow, teleplay by credit by Rod Serling. It was based on a either a script or a story, I don't know, but anyway, Rod Serling wrote the teleplay for it. He, a couple other notable, uh, credits for, uh, Mr. Adams is, or are Breakfast at Tiffany's and also Lilies of the Field, which again, I'll have to plug my Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, I do what's called Patreon potpourri for the $5 patrons. And on that, uh, earlier this year when, um, when, uh, um, I'm oh, sorry, uh, I I reviewed uh, Lilies of the Field kind of in uh, in memory of of Sydney Portier. Um I also reviewed um No Way Out and uh oh um uh, guess Who's Coming to Dinner, as well as In the Heat of the Night. So kind of four reviews of uh, Sydney Portier performances. So check that out, patreon.com slash Viewer. And rounding out the cast is, as the repairman is Jesse White. Uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes with the next being. At the end of the season, he is in the episode Cavender is Coming. And as far as other Serling-related works that he appeared in, he was in the uh Twilight Zone wh- uh, pseudo pilot that I reviewed with Tiny years ago the time element and he was also in uh Serling's I think it was a TV movie the Yellow Canary which I believe I, record, I, I reviewed early in the series or early in the podcast run and then other notable credits uh for Jesse White are Harvey and it's a mad 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 world Uh, in 1963. And so writer for this episode was Richard Matheson. And I believe that he wrote this specifically for Buster Keaton. Um, And this was his eighth of 16 Twilight Zone credits. Uh, Previously, we saw uh, his work in The Invaders in season two. And next we'll see from him is later this season with Little Girl Lost, which I'm very excited about because... Uh, one of my favorite Treehouse of Horrors for The Simpsons was a riff on Little Girl Lost. So I'm curious to see how that kind of plays out in uh, in The Twilight Zone in its original form. And uh, finally, director for this episode was Norman Z. MacLeod... <laughs> Um, this was his first and only Twilight Zone um, episode. He directed a lot of comedy in the thirties and 40s and it was also this was also his only time working with either Rods. oh wow, my voice just cracked so bad. I'm so sorry. This was his only time working with Serling or Buster Keaton for that matter. Um, at the time, he was in semi-retirement, and uh, this was actually his last directing credit before his health actually took a turn, and he unfortunately uh, died shortly thereafter in 1964. So now that I've had the ta- talent rundown uh, rundown, um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the episode, and as is customary, I'm going to start by talking about what I knew before watching Once Upon a Time for the first time. And I had no idea whatsoever. Um, I kind of imagined based solely on the title of the episode, I imagined that it had something to do with fairy tales Um, and maybe that it was it, it was maybe another story coming to life in the real world episode or about someone who is transported into a story's world. I had no idea that Buster Keaton was in it and I had no idea that it had that silent film aesthetic in the first half of the episode. So I was extraordinarily surprised. And let me go into my review for Once Upon a Time. And the first note that I have in my review notes for Once Upon a Time is, whoa, (laughs) Uh, I was not expecting the opening. Um, It was such a treat to see this silent film aesthetic. um, And I found that so interesting. And we get these old fashioned title cards that introduce us to Woodrow Mulligan it says our hero Woodrow Mulligan a disgruntled citizen of Harmony New York 1890 and like i i was just amazed by it i was just absolutely amazed by it and then we see the the kind of breadcrumbs the little bits and pieces that it, that um kind of establish what a uh curmudgeon mulligan is throughout the ser- or throughout the episode and we see him not really looking at him him looking for him kind of looking for negativity in everyday life and so he's reading the newspaper the big the big um headline is government surplus only an eighty nine million dollars um so instead of you know a uh like uh the national debt or anything and and uh like it's just like that's it's such a grass is greener kind of thing. If I'm understanding that correctly, government surplus only $89 million. I thought that that was very cute. Um, and then he passes by and uh, sees sirloin steaks $0.17 cents a pound. <laughs> and uh, and we get the very fun title card that says, uh, what do they think we are, millionaires? Uh, and Then he also passes by a uh, a sign that says, ladies' hats, $1.95. And I just love how this just run of sight gags and, and um visual stimuli in the episode establishes just how curmudgeonly Mulligan is. And for such a light and comedic episode, this definitely had this positive positivity baked into it, um, in terms of the overall message, which are, which I'll kind of, you know, unravel as I go through. This is not a very complex episode. This is not a very uh, this isn't even really a very big social commentary episode. This is just a very kind of ground level down to earth episode about this guy who kind of changes his outlook on the world in a very positive way through this extraordinary science fiction experience. And I kind of really enjoy it for that. Um, I just I, I really like that. It's, it's It kind of creates this just enjoyable messaging behind the episode as a whole. And so we see him being just very annoyed by the man playing the trumpet and the blacksmith, and it's clear that he's seeking an escape from the world and a life that he's just so negative toward. And he, what what I find really interesting about this about this character trait or this character introduction for Mulligan is that he finds throughout the course of the episode. He is, he slowly learns that the annoyances of his 1890s life are his own doings. And it's based on his own perception rather than reality. And I love the cruel, not cruel twist of fate, but like the, the kind of fun Twilight Zone aspect. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but I love the little Twilight Zone aspect where he is transported to a world where (laughs) he uh, can finally have some peace and quiet uh, and it is just in the middle of a busy intersection in 1960s with cars honking and very loud construction and stuff. I I love that. I absolutely love that as a kind of a fun, uh, comedic bit in it. So, um, yeah, so as he's kind of walking, walking across the street and everything, um, or walking down the street, a cop yells at him from across the street and says, Hey, Mulligan, uh, <laughs> curse word. Can't you see that horse and carriage coming? Um, and so he's he's about to be hit by the horse and carriage. And I thought at this moment, I thought that he's going to be hit by the horse by the horse and wake up in present day slash real life. Because I thought maybe he at this point I thought that. He was a silent film actor, kind of like, um, oh, God, what was the episode of World of Difference? I think I always get that episode confused, that episode's title confused with another one in season one. But um, I kind of thought that this was going to be a like, oh, he's in a silent film. He's a character in a silent film because of because of the silent film uh, homages in this opening sequence. And then I thought that he was going to be, you know, he was going to be hit by the horse and then wake up in the present day and in real life. But no, absolutely not. Immediately after I had that thought, uh, he moves out of the way. And uh, and I love that uh, you see the cop yelling at him to watch a step and then Mulligan yells. And then we get the just very delightful title card that's all caps with an exclamation point that just says censored. And I thought that was so much fun. Like, I'll stop here and say this, and this is not meant to be derogatory toward the the Twilight Zone, or or really, this is not meant to be a criticism of The Twilight Zone in its own, in as a whole. But I have noticed that in some cases, my memory of the show uh, throughout these years that I've been doing this podcast are that when it tries to do comedy, sometimes it doesn't really land quite as well. And I don't know how much of that is just me watching it in modern day and maybe not connecting with the humor of the sixties. But I don't think that's it, because I, I kinda want to give myself a little bit more credit than that, <laughs> but that's certainly a small possibility. But also I just think that it's it's a little bit weaker because Because I love The Twilight Zone for its social commentary, for its science fiction, for its otherworldly premises and everything. I love it for that. And I kind of feel like when it goes into comedy, it doesn't really work all that well for me. Having said that, I think that the comedy in this episode so far, we haven't even... we're, We're just now about to get to the opening narration. But at this point in the episode the comedy is landing so, so well. It is so great. It is perfect. And I'm really, really enjoying it. And it's bringing me into the episode in such a unique way, something that I haven't seen in the Twilight Zone before and am willing to bet that nothing like this is going to be in the Twilight Zone going forward. Maybe. I don't know. I have, I'm halfway through the entire series. So who's to say I could have, I could put my foot in my mouth with that, but I just really enjoy that. So um, so Mulligan is run off the sidewalk into a pig trow-, trow, trow trow trow, yeah, I don't know by one of uh the one of those like very very uh big like bicycles with the big wheel on the front and the small wheel on the back. I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's just very uh indicative of the time and I love that he yells at the at the bicyclist and it just says also censored and again. Just really, really fun. Absolutely just a blast so far. Absolutely fun. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and play the opening narration from Rod Serling for Once Upon a Time, and then I will get into my review of the rest of it. So here we go, the opening narration from Rod Serling. Mr. Mulligan, a rather dour critic of his times, is shortly to discover the import of that old phrase... Out of the frying pan into the fire. Said fire burning brightly at all times in the Twilight Zone. And Serling's, Serling's uh performance of this of this opening narration is kind of a delight. I don't know if maybe it's because it's been a while since I've seen uh seen the Twilight Zone, but Serling has this grin in the opening narration that is just so it is so warm. There's there's a warmth to that grin. And it's almost like it's almost like he's winking to us at the idea of uh, of them having Buster Keaton in the episode. Maybe I'm kind of projecting with what I know of Buster Keaton's legacy, which is only what I know of his legacy. I haven't seen any of his work, but I just know that he is a, a prominent figure. And I just kind of feel like that, that grin on Serling's face is like, yeah, we got Buster Keaton and this is, this is exciting and everything. Um, but either way, if that's the case, if not, if I'm just projecting onto that, It had the makings of it being a very fun episode. and I'm going to spoil the rest of the review and say this was a very fun episode. It did deliver on that. It was a lot of fun. Um, So, um, at this point, the opening narration has been completed, and we now are still in the uh, silent era, which is interesting because I kind of thought that the conceit or the the Twilight Zone element, the the time travel into 1961 or 1962, I kind of thought that that was going to be, I I kind of expected the narration to kind of break that apart. I expected the narration to basically, I was expecting the prologue to be Mulligan going into the future. And then the narration would be basically what breaks that up. And then after the narration, we get, uh, him in the future, but no, he, we actually have more of the kind of slapstick silent era stuff. And this is where Buster Keaton is allow is able to kind of really shine. And obviously he's, he's done this for, for decades at this point. Um, so it's very natural, but the slapstick and the, the kind of physical comedy is just so great. I mean, like this is the man who famously like put himself into harm's way And like I like I know that I know that Buster Keaton had the like house house wall fall on him and him go through the window as it fell down like that is that is bonkers insane. And so to get to see that uh, someone of that stature in in the Twilight Zone doing these like fun slapstick comedy bits is a lot of fun. It's absolutely fun. And so, uh he uh trips trips into the closed door and everything. He goes he and he's going into the basement of Professor Gilbert, who's his employer. And right here I che- I I just checked this off here in my notes. I just said is this going to be a comedic version of the season 1 episode execution? And it kind of is. And I'll talk about that in a bit, but it kind of is and I kind of like it for that. I honestly kind of like it for that. I'll talk more about that as I go through the episode, but it's just an interesting kind of mirror of execution. Execution was was a very interesting episode that follows the same basic plot. Um it was even so so similar that I honestly I kind of stopped this episode and I looked to see if uh Richard Matheson had written Execution as well, but I don't think he did. Um I can't remember who did that one, but it wasn't it wasn't uh Richard Matheson. So we get more slapstick of Mulligan changing and him kind of changing his clothes because he's all wet from from falling into the little trough, trough. Um That's how you pronounce it trough. Yeah. Um, so I like that he it's just this bumbling kind of thing. And throughout this entire sequence in this entire uh, silent era thing, and I'll talk about this in trivia, but uh, the frames are being the 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 film the footage is being kind of sped up or maybe not exactly sped up i'll talk about this in in trivia of course but it's it's definitely being edited in certain way in certain in a certain way (laughs) that gives us this um gives it this this visual um aesthetic of the of a silent film um in like the twenties and thirties and it's very effective. So as he's walking around, like this level of filmmaking and editing and everything gives off this impression of him being very confused and very, uh, forgetful. And as he's, as he keeps finding these things in his pockets, as he's like pressing his pants to hang them up to dry and everything, he just keeps pulling things out of his pockets and it's fun. It's a fun little bit of comedy. He pulls out a handkerchief and a harmonica and we get this very cute, uh, Uh, kind of like dialogue card that says tweet. And because I'm I'm millennial in 2022, I immediately thought like, oh, uh, well, I thought I thought of Twitter, obviously, but I thought that it was going to be a bird. And I think that's probably the impression or that the the intention. So you get that little little slice of fear that like, oh, oh, he's pressing a bird in this, but it's just a harmonica. And uh, it's it's fun. I like that. So then. Then he takes out the newspaper from his jacket pocket and presses it. And as someone who is a unapologetic fan of the of fun wordplay and uh, corny puns, we get the dialogue uh, card that comes up and says hot off the presses as he presses the newspaper on the, you know, the press for his pants. Uh, Delightful, just absolutely delightful. I really like that. So at this point, we, we kind of, we've gotten our, maybe not our fill of Buster Keaton doing his shtick, but we've, we've got a steady run of comedy bits and physical comedy. And so now we need plot. Um, uh, Professor Gilbert comes in with his time helmet and he, uh, we get, we get dialogue cards that goes into detail about it. It gives us all of the exposition we need and it says, uh, it's his time helmet, and put it on, and you can visit any year you choose for 30 minutes, only 30 minutes. So right there, we have established that there is time travel in this episode. There is a device that utilizes uh, uh, utilizes science to send someone into any year that they choose. There's parameters to where they can only be there for 30 minutes before they're sent back. So right off the bat, we have all of the information we need. And I think that that's really interesting because it's just all, it's really playing into the, the concept or the, the style of this. Like this is such a clean way to give us all of the information we need to continue enjoying this episode of the Twilight Zone, strictly because it's in that silent era dialogue card, um, thing, uh, aesthetic, that, that style. And it's just so, it's such an, amazing way to just very concisely give us the information we need. So I really like that. And so Gilbert and his assistant leave and Mulligan approaches the uh, helmet as I drop my phone. <laughs> um, he approaches the helmet and kind of starts. Uh, he he wants to go to a time where there's peace and quiet and he puts it on and he turns the dial to 1960. <laughs> and Uh, I thought that that was just it's very charming because again this is Buster Keaton doing this kind of um, this kind of physical comedy just kind of low grade and there's some really cool visual effects uh, special effects in this episode where like the there's flares and lights on the helmet and it kind of has like this sparkler kind of effect but it's I I really like it in addition to, well, yeah, it's just visual because you know, the sound is just the piano, but I really like just the visual aspect of it because the, the flares and the, and the lights and everything are coming out of it from all sides. And it's just a very cool, um, a very cool effect. And, uh, Mulligan freaks out. He runs out and runs through the town in a panic. He's, he holds a chicken. Um, and, at this point, I'm like, yes, this is the climax of the silent era segment of the episode. And it's just, it's, it's perfect. It's great. And then boom, we are brought to 1960s Harmony, New York in the middle of the street with honking cars. And we, ha- okay, so we, have <laughs> we have Mulligan standing in the middle of a busy intersection with this crazy helmet on no pants. Cause he's been pressing his pants. He is holding a chicken in his hands. And he, again, he's wearing this ridiculous helmet and just the look of stupefied, uh, disorientation on Buster Keaton's face. Like that is just such a delightful image. Like it is so much fun. And again, it, it brings us to into the 1960s, into the modern day without, without, uh, losing any of the, um, losing any of the co- comedic timing, any of the comedic tension from the previous segment. And I think that that is very much due to the fact that we had that title card, that dialogue card that explained in, in detail, in concise detail, exactly the parameters. We did not waste any time, ex, uh, we did not waste any comedic time giving us the information that we need for the episode. Instead, we are given the information for the episode, and then we are still going full-bore uh, Buster Keaton comedy. And it's it's really effective storytelling. It's really effective writing, and I really like that. And so again, this is very similar to Execution from season one. There's a cacophony of sound, and there we see just this very we see all of the stimuli all of the all of all of the stimulus around uh mulligan as we see signs showing the increased prices the increased speed limits and everything as we hear these cars going uh all around him and again very similar to execution because when um oh, i can't remember his name um when the criminal goes into the future in execution he is immediately um, just, uh, maybe not immediately, I don't remember, but I don't know. He, he is very much, we have that neon sign, loud noises kind of, uh, kind of, Thing that is just showing the compl- the drastically different thing. So it's it's extraordinarily similar to Execution and this is not where the similarities end. I'll talk about this later, but there's another scene that's basically a scene from Execution but reappropriated or or uh, a concept that's that's kind of redone for this uh, for this episode. And I think that that's pretty interesting. So as Mulligan is standing there stupefied, someone drives past him in a truck and grabs his helmet as they pass him. And this confused me for a second because I thought that it was just someone just grabbing a helmet and just kind of being an ass. But, um, but someone grabbed I think the reason that he grabs the helmet is it's by mistake because he is, I thought, I think that he was signaling to turn left um, at the intersection and then his hand just just got like latched onto the helmet and then he carried it because afterwards he's trying to uh get rid of the helmet and everything and he does tosses it aside and then we get a kid on a bike or no no, no a kid on roller skates takes it and he wears it and he's like then mulligan gives chase he runs after the kid there's this whole like This whole like running bit where uh, Mulligan's chasing the kid. The cop is chasing Mulligan and then Mulligan steals a bike to go after the kid. And then this part, this part confused me. So there's a guy getting his shoes shined and he sees it, stops, gets up, stares into the distance. And I don't know if that ever comes into play. If I missed something, please let me know, because I thought that like it. It looked like there was a little bit of uh, like a look of recognition. And I thought like, oh, he's going to recognize that maybe he knows someone from the 1890s and he's whatever. But no, he never really does anything. I don't think he ever comes back into the picture. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. And I guess I it does make sense that it's just, you know, it's showing passers by, it's showing um, bystanders. Uh Reacting to Mulligan running through the streets, like the crazy image so it it's understandable and everything, but it's it's a little strange that there's so much uh there's so much uh screen presence of this guy to have it not coming into play in, into the plot and so here's where I'm going to kind of pause for a second and just say that I need to look into this because I don't know how much is like intentionally riffing on this. But all I kept thinking when I was rewatching this was did Robert Zemeckis and I think Bob Gale, did they take information from this specific episode of the Twilight Zone when they were making Back to the Future? Um, Because this is a Back to the Future scene. Like this scene was used in Back to the Future, like basically Marty McFly, is is chasing is being chased by biff and he like gets like even down to like the kid on roller skates in the in the movie it's a kid with this like uh wooden scooter thing that he that he breaks off and you know uses as, as a skateboard but it's just this is very 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 similar um and it's and i'm just very curious if zemeckis uh, and Bob Gale and Spielberg and everyone involved with Back to the Future used this as kind of a blueprint of sorts, um, or use this as inspiration because obviously uh, it's it's way too similar uh, to to not be uh, intentional. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, back to the future is one is like one of my favorite movies of all. I'm staring at a back to the future poster on my wall. <laughs> um, it is one of my absolute, absolute favorite movies of all time. Um, so I, I was delighted to see what is presumably a, uh, in a, an inspiration for it in this episode of the twilight zone so uh the kid turns down an alley and he drops the helmet and goes away mulligan then crashes into rollo and and sits on him when he sees that the helmet is broken and i love that because that's 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 the first time i think we hear buster keaton's voice in this episode he just says like oh it's broken and i don't know just like he just has this energy to him i he's he's so good he's so good Um, and then he, and then we get just quick dialogue saying like he only has 15 minutes to get back. And I really like the time crunch aspect to the story. I really do because it creates this propulsive sense of drama without sacrificing the zany comedy beats. And I think, I mean, Richard Matheson, man, he was, uh, he, uh, he, like the writing in this is phenomenal. The economic storytelling is just absolutely incredible, and here's another bit that I really, I really wonder if this episode was like a blueprint for, for Back to the Future, because Rollo believes him, uh, Rollo, like, there's a whole scene where, oh my god, I just made another connection, uh, there's a whole scene where Rollo asks him, like, oh, who's the president, and then he's like, uh, like, uh, I can't remember who he said, um, who was the president before him, oh, it was this guy, oh, okay, oh, um, I believe you. Yes, oh great. And uh and again, like in my notes I just have I love time travel. Like I just love time travel in fiction. It is it is such a delight anytime I see it. It's so much fun. Um, and this is just such a fun, fun use of it where he asks who the president is, which again makes me wonder, was this episode a blueprint for Back to the Future? Because right off the bat, uh, Doc Brown asks him like, Oh, okay, who's the president in 1985? Oh, Ronald Reagan, the actor? Uh, great. And then the other connection that I made is I'm gonna have to go back and watch Back to the Future again, but, uh, In fact, I I just recently moved, by the way, a few months ago. And Back to the Future was the first movie I watched in my new apartment. Um, So uh, to kind of commemorate it with one of my favorite movies. But anyway, um, the helmet, because Doc Brown, like when when Marty goes back to 1955 and he uh, looks up Doc Brown and he finds his house and he knocks on the door, Doc Brown is wearing a helmet similar to the helmet that that Mulligan uses in this episode of The Twilight Zone. I like I'll have to go back and see but like right off the bat, like that's, that's nuts to me. It has, it has to be. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, then we get like, I like how quickly it is that these two characters just kind of, uh, like immediately connect and they immediately bond. There's no drama between them or anything. Uh, so then, well, no drama. I, uh, there's some drama, but Mulligan grabs the, grabs the helmet and runs into Jack's Fix-It Shop and uh the repairman presumably Jack uh tells them that oh yeah it'll be ready Thursday at 2. And then we get this very very fun very fun bit where the two men are like oh okay cool and then they're walking out of the out of the shop and then they both they both simultaneously stop and turn around and say Thursday um in surprise it's again I I adore that. I I just adore that. There's something so, so, so wonderful about that kind of comedy. Like it is so lighthearted. It is so much fun. And if you commit to it, if you, if you really buy into it, if you really enjoy it, like it, this will pay dividends in terms of entertainment. It is very, very fun. Um, so then that's the act break. And then after that, we get again, a just fun little clever turn of phrase. We have Rollo telling Jack, this man has to get back to 1890. And, uh, Jack says, then you're in the wrong block. This is only 1600, which again, I think is just so much fun. It's a clever turn of phrase. It's a good um, it's a good reprieve from the physical comedy and giving us a, uh, you know, a verbal or dialogue based comedy, comedy beat keeps it fresh, keeps the comedy alive. And again, the comedy in this episode is just a lot of fun. It's, it's very fun. And so here's the other connection to, uh, execution from season one Mulligan as, as Rollo and the repairman are arguing or are talking Mulligan looks over at a TV thinking that it's a window very similar to what the criminal uh did with the TV in the bar um yeah because he thought like he thought he was in a standoff <laughs> um so um anyway so Mulligan looks at the, looks at the television as if it's a window and then he takes the remote and just presses a button and the TV turns on and this is a this is a very fun bit of comedy again because Mulligan thinks that the man in the TV is talking directly to him, and he says, "Hey, listen to me. That man over there, uh, he's uh, he doesn't have all of his beans or something." And then the timing of of Mulligan turning away when looking over at um, at Rallo and Jack when the show goes to the opposite shot of the woman is just a fun bit of comedy. And like he turns back and he's like, "That guy doesn't have all of his beans," and he's like, "Okay." And so he goes up to Rollo and he's like, Hey, what does that mean? Uh, and then he's like, it's just, he's, he's, you know, crazy. And then he's like, well, that man in the window over there told me that he doesn't have all of his marbles or whatever. And I just, again, again, that's a physical visual joke. And then we get a comedic, like quick comedic bit where Rollo says that's TV. And then he says, who's TV. (laughs) And I just thought that's cute. That's fun. Um, Yeah. And so, again, it just plays out like a comedy version of Execution, which, you know, surprisingly, I would think like, oh, maybe that's kind of derivative, but it's working for me quite a bit. And I think part of that is because Buster Keaton is so iconic and getting a chance to, and granted, I'm saying this with an asterisk because I haven't seen any of uh, Buster Keaton's work, but... Uh, because we have the stature of a Buster Keaton in this episode, it really makes it feel less derivative and more unique um, because of the talent involved. And so, as Rollo and the repairman are arguing, Mulligan inadvertently turns on a vacuum cleaner, he freaks out, and I kind of love the way that Mulligan kicks the vacuum. It's kind of endearing, and he's backing away from it, and he's freaked out by it as if it's like an animal. And it kind of reminded me of like, I hope this isn't too reductive or anything, but it kind of reminded me of like, uh, like a cat or a dog that's afraid of something <laughs> like it. I mean, it's a vacuum cleaner. So yeah, it's very similar to similar to that, uh, to that kind of thing, but I don't know. So Rollo kind of, uh, sits, sits Mulligan down and tells him to sit down and, and, you know, uh, be, be calm and everything. Um, and so we get another piece of comedy where he sits on the vacuum bag and accidentally turns it on again. Um, and then, so he leaves and he tries to buy pants on the street and, uh, the man comes out and he says, Oh, it's $5, but he says he has no money. So he walks away. He puts it calmly puts the, puts the pants back on the hanger and walks away. And at this point, we are, I don't know how far we are in the episode, honestly, but at this part, I will say that the whole shtick was starting to wear a little bit thin for me, Um but it was kind of offset by the fun bickering between Rollo and Jack. So while while Buster Keaton kind of reacting to modern day... um wore a bit thin, the drama or the energy of Rollo and the repairman were arguing was kind of, kind of keeping it a little fresh. So, um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like it was wearing a little bit thin, but, uh, yeah, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, the cop, uh, cop stops Mulligan. So Mulligan runs back into the fix-it shop and hides behind, <laughs> oh, oh, runs back to, to, uh, the kind of alleyway. Um, and I loved this again, this is a fun, uh a fun visual comedy bit that's predicated on timing and everything. So uh Mulligan hides behind Rollo as they walk past the cop. And so so the cop can't see can't see Mulligan because Mulligan is behind Rollo and then they walk back with Mulligan in front uh uh to pass by him so that they can get the pants and everything. It's it's really it's really fun. It's it's or um no, I'm sorry. So they walk back to get to get the pants, uh, then they get the pants and then, <laughs> the 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 kind of the effortless way that uh, Rollo just lifts Mulligan up so that he can put the pants on while still in front of him and not being detected by the cop is just a very nice touch. It's a it's a lot of fun. And so on the way back, they pay the manager of the guy, of the the clothing store and they're all set. So at this point they go back in the time element or the time element. Wow. The time helmet is fixed. Uh, And uh, Rollo talks about how much he loves the 1890s. And this feels a little bit sudden and like, it doesn't really track for me, but I'm not going to really, I'm not going to really think too hard about it. But, um, but just like the sudden, the sudden aspect, like, I don't feel like we really saw anything of Rollo in this episode to really show his disdain or show his disappointment with the 1960s. Um so this all kind of comes about very very suddenly. So anyway, so he uh talks about how much he likes the time period and says that there's no income tax, which is cute. Um and then he then puts on the helmet to be set, sent back in time. And this is kind of this is kind of cruel and mean, but he's like uh, he tells like, like Mulligan's like, no, I've got to get back. And Rollo's like, well, no, you're, I'm a scientist. I'm a respected scientist. You're just a janitor. You're unimportant. So I'm going to go back in time and be important. Um, and then Mulligan tries to explain like, oh no, we can go back together because I brought a chicken and, uh, a chicken, uh, back with me. So, so that it'll work if we just hold on to each other. And Rollo doesn't believe him here. And again, it's kind of stretching my It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of stretching my suspension of disbelief a little bit because Rollo was so quick to believe Mulligan had traveled uh, into the future that, like, this just feels a little bit shaky. Like like I said, this whole element where Rollo has the helmet and is going to go back in time and leave Mulligan in the present just feels very just sudden. It feels very sudden and unearned for me. So... Uh, there's another chase scene that mirrors the beginning chase scene, but this time Mulligan is chasing Rollo and he, uh, <laughs> there's, there's this really funny scene where, funny part where he actually tries to push a truck to get it to move, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and then in the last minute, the same, I think the same spot in the street, um, uh, the, um. Rollo has the helmet and he says, eighteen ninety, here I come. Right at the last second, Mulligan jumps over the truck and grabs Rollo right in time, and they go they both go back to eighteen ninety. And now we get the return of the silent era style, and we get basically uh the denouement or the resolution of the episode. So, um they get back, we get back to the silent era style and they actually landed on officer Flanagan from the beginning of the episode, which I thought was pretty fun. And Mulligan actually kisses him and says, officer Flanagan, you're a sight for sore eyes. Again, we have the title card or the dialogue card. Um, And Rollo has this look of glee uh on his face, which i really i kind of appreciate I thought that was charming. It was a good way to kind of show that he isn't a villain; he was just taking an opportunity to to go to change his life and in fact, it's kind of just like the same situation that uh that Mulligan had at the beginning of the episode. Rollo saw a situation in which he could go to a time that he that better suited him. And so, uh, so he took that opportunity, same as Mulligan, seeing an opportunity to go to a time that, uh, better suited him, took that opportunity as well. So I don't know. I I, I can reconcile the change in Rollo in these few moments with that, like look of glee that he has. So it does kind of track a little bit. It did, it did still come out of nowhere, but it does track a little bit. So anyway, we get a, uh, a title card saying one week later, and we see a happy and contented Mulligan, um, as the, I, I believe it's on the, um, uh, the title card as well. And it's an inverse of the beginning. He's no longer a curmudgeon. Uh, uh, he sees the, he sees the sign saying stakes 17 cents a pound. And he says, Hey, how can they, how can they sell it so cheap? So it's very, it's very charming. It's a good closing of his character arc and everything it's very it's very charming it's that's that's the best i can use to describe it. it's a very charming moment and so mulligan goes back to the basement and blows on the harmonica this time you know he's just enjoying it and now uh he greets rollo and now we see that rollo is the curmudgeon now and (laughs) because it's so short-sighted of him and it's I kind of love it a little bit. Uh, He's the curmudgeon. He is whining about his laboratory, saying that there's no electronic equipment, no transistor parts, no ultrasonic cathodes, no uh, spring mattresses, air foam pillows, or electric blankets. He is miserable, (laughs) and I found that to be really, really funny, and in keeping with the overall tone of this episode, uh, Mulligan puts the Time Helmet onto Rollo and sends him back to 1960. So while other episodes of The Twilight Zone would have capitalized on the cruelty, like if this was a Charles Beaumont um, uh, episode, it would have capitalized on like, oh, Rollo got his just desserts. He's back in time and he can't do anything. It's this cruel twist of fate and everything. But no, Mulligan is willing to uh to help him so he puts the time helmet on sends him back to 1960 and the episode ends and it's just very i don't know very charming and it's in keeping with the overall comedic tone of the episode so with that we get uh, uh we get um rod serling's closing narration which i will play right uh now to each his own so goes another old phrase to which mr woodrow mulligan would heartily subscribe For he has learned definitely the hard way that there is much wisdom in a third old phrase which goes as follows, stay in your own backyard, to which it might be added and, if possible, assist others to stay in theirs via, of course, the Twilight Zone. So overall, um, Once Upon a Time is a super fun and funny episode that I just love the way it pays homage to the silent era and pays homage to Buster Keaton as well and it was a very nice and pleasant spin on the be careful what you wish for motif and the way that it plays out is is very uh charming really is the best word i can use to describe it um it's just a very very fun lighthearted episode and i really enjoyed it and i love the homages to uh to classic uh comedy and and it just feels like it feels like they brought their A game with the comedy because of the stature of Buster Keaton in the homage to, uh, the silent era. So I have a couple of pieces of trivia, uh, before I wrap up this review, but first of all, um, well, not, but, but first my piece of trivia for the first piece of trivia is, uh, Buster Keaton was obviously one of the, um, biggest stars of the silent era and, Uh, this entire episode was, was intended as an homage to that work. And it was, like I said, Richard Matheson wrote it specifically for him. Um, I believe. And then the other piece of trivia that I find really interesting is that the, uh, the choice to make the 1890 section in the style of a silent film wasn't made until a rough cut of the episode was viewed. So they filmed it with like dialogue, they filmed it. They wrote it and filmed it as a conventional episode introduction. Introduction, and they had dialogue and everything. But when they got a rough cut of the episode, they re edited, re edited it with dialogue title cards and a piano soundtrack, and uh, and also in order to make it feel like, uh, to make it feel more like that silent era uh, projection. Um, the editors removed removed a frame here and there in each scene uh, to give the scenes a sense of that jumpiness from the silent era and I just found that to be really interesting that this that this uh, that this choice that bears such a big piece of import to the comedy and the homage of this episode um, I'm so surprised that it was it was a decision made so late in production like it has all the makings of being a conceptual uh, a conceptual um, choice from pre-production, from writing. Um, so I was very surprised to find that information. And in fact, that's why Rod Serling's opening narration kind of feels like a little bit tacked on or kind of out of place. Because um, they didn't know that they were going to do that silent era thing until it was being edited and everything. And I find that to be really interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean, it worked incredibly well. I'm so glad that they did that because it just really, really brought, brought me into the episode in such a, such a big way. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know who, uh, is responsible for making that decision or who thought that up, but man, that it worked like gangbusters. Um, it really elevated the episode for me and overall, I will say, yeah, like I said, this was a fun episode of the Twilight Zone um, I'm glad that I'm now halfway through the show, and um, I'm eager to uh, see what the back half has to uh, offer. Um, but before I go, I'm going to, of course, go ahead and do a bonus review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, episode 21, titled Dead Reckoning, which I believe is available to uh, watch online. There's a link in the show notes of this episode and in last week's episode. Um, so you can go check that out and then come back and, and uh, check out this review. I'm not going to spoil the episode, um, but yeah, fair warning. There's the link and everything, so I'm going to go into my review of Dead Reckoning. So, Dead Reckoning, originally aired on September 17th, 1955, and the synopsis, according to IMDb, is, Trouble befalls an Air Force flight crew and their passengers, a meteorologist and his beautiful assistant en route to the Arctic. Uh, This episode was directed by Robert L. Strock and written by Gene Levitt. It stars James Craig, Steve Brody, and Arlene Whalen. And uh, yes, yeah, so, as is customary, uh at the beginning of the episode, there's a pre-show introduction by host Truman Bradley, where he does something he he kind of ties the story into a scientific method or scientific uh experiment, and in this one, he's playing with magnets. <laughs> he puts a magnet on a magnetic coal or puts a piece of metal on a magnetic coal, and he talks about the mystery of magnetic force, and then he uh brings us into the episode and yeah, uh this was pretty solid. This is again it's it's not my favorite episode of the season. It's not my favorite. It didn't really blow my hair back or anything, but uh basically it's about a volcano that's erupting with an air force base nearby. So, uh air force pilots are being uh are prepping for a secret mission to go to the Arctic island for some reason. I don't know exactly what the purpose of the flight was. Um, But they are taking the scientist and his assistant to the island or to the to the Arctic so that they can kind of uh, I guess I guess the purpose of it was so that they can evaluate it and see if the uh, Air Force base can be salvaged. I I don't know. So uh, there was a a fun bit of comedy in this episode where um, a guy, one of the uh, one of the people, one of the Air Force people uh, were talk was talking about sunspots and uh they were talking about how like oh yes the like, I think that, I think they were referring to it, like they were referring to it as sunspots, but they, I think, I think what they were talking about was like solar flares. And they were like, yeah, you know, sunspots, uh, can cause great destruction on earth and everything. And maybe that's, what's causing the volcano to erupt. And then another guy says that <laughs> he says, oh yeah, I've got an uncle, uh, who knows all about sunspots and he names a bunch of beaches. <laughs> like, uh, he's like, yeah, you know, um, Fort Lauderdale and, uh, Uh, other beaches i don't know um (laughs) other places with beaches so i thought that was that was a fun bit of um comic relief in the episode so the actual meat of the episode it takes place on this on this plane that's being flown to the arctic and there's trouble uh instruments stop working due to this electrical storm that's nearby and the thing that I really appreciate about this, or the thing that I liked, is the thing I like about all of these episodes I've reviewed, where it shows them working out the problem. It shows them working out scientifically, like, how to solve this problem, what's causing it, what how they can, uh, you know, how, how they can work through it, which is great. And also, this episode, uh, even though I said that it's not really my favorite episode or anything, it is... An episode that does have some things going for it. It has that working out the problem um, aspect to, to it. It has this very interesting minimalistic set with the cockpit and the plane, um, and it's pretty clever. Like they use they they do some science stuff to make like an a makeshift uh, altimeter and everything. So it's there's some interesting stuff there, but what I kind of appreciate about it was that time the time element, um <laughs> the time aspect of it where uh where they're like okay, well yeah, this is a life or death situation. This is potentially life or death. Our instruments are not working. We are flying blind and we need to science our way out of it. And what I really like about that is that it it this is a little bit different than other episodes in that uh, they have to like it is a time sensitive thing it is something that like they are in they're in potentially deadly trouble if they don't work out what is going on and I really like that I thought that that, uh, that added a bit of suspense to it that's different from previous episodes where the suspense was kind of born from uh from like other characters and um kind of situational tension that kind of felt a little manufactured. This, this, the plot of this episode definitely has this propulsive energy, this propulsive tension uh, that does have this uh, very much uh, time, time sensitive, uh, you know, threat to the characters. And I won't give away what happens. But uh, I did enjoy it. I thought it was fine. It's kind of middle of the road. It's not really that, uh all that great, really. But it was a pleasant episode. And I do recommend checking it out online um, and everything. So yeah, I don't really have much else to say about Dead Reckoning. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was solid. It was cool. So so yeah, so that's my very brief review of Dead Reckoning from uh, Science Fiction Theater's first season, and that'll do it for this episode of Anthology, guys. Um, uh, before I go, I just want to say, once again, check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where I'm posting frequent, frequent updates, um, frequent audio content, so if you uh, want to like support the show, that's a great way to do it. And you also get some free content or content that you pay for. Um yeah, one dollar per month gets you uh access to B-roll recordings, that's just kind of like general conversations and stuff, and uh and some other fun goodies. And then two dollars gets you a bunch of stuff. Like I've been doing a um a review series on Stephen King's short fiction collections, so I have uh, like about six hours worth of audio about me talking about his collection night shift from the seventies. And then, uh, I have another six hours worth of audio of him, of ta- me talking about each individual story in, um, Skeleton Crew, Stephen King's 1980s uh, uh, short story collection. And then if you... Oh, and I also have uh, like movie reviews, TV episode uh, reviews. I've been doing Stranger Things Season 4. I've been doing uh, a bunch of Marvel shows. I just finished Hawkeye. And I'm going to be doing Severance uh, here soon on Apple TV+. I also did Foundation on Apple TV+, and Chapelweight on Epic. So there's a ton of stuff there. (laughs) $5 also gets you... Uh, commentary tracks um, and and some Patreon potpourri stuff. And then $10 gets you all of that, plus uh, early access to content and unreleased content. So anyway... Go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer if you're interested in supporting supporting what I do here and getting some some exclusive audio content. Um, that's it. <laughs> next time on the podcast, I'm gonna be doing a special halfway through the Twilight Zone episode, uh, kind of going through all of the uh, all of the stuff I've learned in this in this first half of the Twilight Zone. Uh, so yeah. So without further ado, I just want to say thank you guys once again for, uh, for listening and for supporting me in any way that you do. Um, so I really appreciate it and I'm so glad to be back and I will see you guys next time for halfway through the Twilight Zone. Thank you guys and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. All right, and I am back. I just got out of the theater uh, from the Investor Connect screening of the black phone. And, oh, man. Okay, first of all, my initial reaction, my my immediate thought coming out of that movie is, I really need to watch Scott Derrickson's other movies. <laughs> um, I need to watch Sinister. I need to watch Sinister Two, which I think he did. I still haven't confirmed that or not, but I need to see those because this guy is really good. <laughs> uh, this movie was was really, really, uh, impressive. I'll probably rate it four stars. Um, and it has this just tension throughout it. Um, Ethan Hawke's performance is bone chilling. Um, it's mostly, well, I mean, he has that creepy mask on that's in the trailers and everything. He has different variations of it, and... He's so intimidating and creepy, and he plays up this completely insane, murderous person. He plays, it, he plays this person so well. And so- this podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.